the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome to Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of Valerie, her guests, and callers. Now here's your host, Valerie Kirkgaard. I am your host. I am here. I'm totally delighted to be here with you today. You're listening to Waking Up in America, dynamic radio dialogues on issues that matter. In our 22nd year of radio, we are inviting angels and sponsors to bring us into your neighborhood, and that includes other parts of the world. So if you have any contacts that you would like to have that could help us, call us at 310-455-8623. That's 310-455-8623. And the country code is 01. Want to ask a question while we're on the air? Send me an email at val at wakingupinamerica.com. Once again, that's val at wakingupinamerica.com. To get things started off, let's remember what our forefathers offered us. We were set up as a republic, as you might perhaps remember, and I'm going to suggest that we say the Pledge of Allegiance now. So if you take your hand and you place it over your heart, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I'm not taking God out of the pledge for any reason. I'm Dr. Val Kirkgaard, and in 1984, I carried the Olympic torch. And once you've lit your torch, I'll tell you, you can't ever put it down. And Gene Houston will tell you, our guest on the show today. Today, I invite you to light your torch and join the standards held forth by all bearers of this 2,000-year-old flame. Sitius, Altius, Fortius, swifter, higher, stronger. Our guests reflect values from all fields, and the, from internationally known nutritionist J.J. Virgin to Taekwondo champion Mary Louise Zeller to the very solar Mr. Larry Hagman and the very social artistry of Gene Houston. Bob Costa of the Home Shopping Network says we are doing radio, which will change the world. Help us make that true by you spreading the word and letting people know about us. Visit our website and sign up for our newsletter, which gives you information on our sponsors and lets you know the up-and-coming guests. If you happen to hear a telephone ringing, a dog barking, or an angel singing, know that we call in from our homes and offices all over the world to cause this program. We're on the air today with Gene Houston, and you should just hop right over now to Gene Houston, and that's J-E-A-N, and then H-O-U-S-T-O-N dot org, and take a look at what's going on here. This very articulate and wonderful woman hasn't actually been on Waking Up in America in a couple of years, and part of the reason is she travels relentlessly and powerfully all over the world. And I'm just delighted to have her here because she'll give you a different point of view than what you're hearing on television and on the radio. She'll let you know what the issues are, and it isn't just about cheating bankers and things of that nature. How do we turn into such cheaters? So... Jean, welcome to Waking Up in America. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be back with you again. So we were talking before the show, and you were saying that you were so well-traveled. Well, many, have where traveled. have you traveled, and how many places have you well, gone? Well, I would say it's over 100 countries. I've subsequently lost count, because some of these countries have changed names since the time. Does <laughs> <I began laughs> that traveling. give you double points or something? But, I don't know. But I, I work all over the world, with uh, mainly with leadership all over the world. 
Could you, you say know, more about working with leadership? Well, we don't so, hear your name associated with leaders necessarily, do we? Well, I, I have to keep a low profile in many ways because I've worked with two U.S. presidents, three first ladies, and their equivalents all over the world, as well as with people who are in charge of their lepers who are in charge of their, their leper colony. I mean, I literally every level I've worked. That's too many leaders have been raised to be white males of the year 1926. You know, they simply have not been raised <laughs> with the necessary complexity to deal with today's enormous challenges. Well, what, now when you said 1926, that's a very interesting year to pick. So what mm-hmm. sticks out in your mind for 1926? It was a very different mind. It, it was almost a different reality. And so many people have been trained for a reality that is much, much earlier. I mean, I say that as a joke, but the, the general thing is that most leaders have not been trained for present complexity. And part of my work, literally all over the world, is to help cultures, sometimes governments, often leaders at every level, uh, to really use so much more of their mind, their body, their psychological, their spiritual beingness in order to become adequate stewards of this what is the most interesting time in human history. I mean, I realize that other times in history thought they were it. They're wrong. This is it. This is it. <laughs> I mean, what we do will profoundly make a difference. As to well, they we were probably all it at the time. Pardon? I said they were probably all it at the time because they were as far as the world had come. That's right. But now it's it because now we're dealing with not only world-destroying problems, but also world-embracing ones. The world mind is taking a walk with itself. This is the time of the greatest emergence of culture and consciousness in history. So, Jean, we were, we were talking about, you were talking about talking to um, a leader of a leper colony and to presidents yes. and, and first ladies and leaders of different cultures. Mm-hmm. What would you talk to a leader of a leper colony about? Well, first of all, I would find out what his issues are. Uh-huh. And what, I is, mean, what might really the issue be? You really have to be enter for... into compassionate understanding. You have to drop... You know, you have to have leaky margins to everybody. You can't come in as an American or as someone with a particular strict point of view. You have to be utterly resonant and relevant to these people. So I do an enormous amount of research before I go anywhere. Well, I picked lepers because I thought it was probably the least known thing. Well, Um, yes. I mean, what we might be talking about is how these people could have professions, how they could not just be lepers but have, you know, useful creative lives. And um, so that might be what I've, I've worked with Mother Teresa on that one, you know. No, I didn't oh, yeah. know actually. Yeah, that I've you worked, worked with, with Mother, Teresa Mom, and Mother Teresa and all those kinds of interesting folks. And for example, a leper would come toward Mother Teresa and say, "Mother Teresa, we don't want to just be lepers; we want to have useful lives." So that might be something where I would be, you know, brought in, not necessarily by Mother Teresa, but by others relevant to that. We, and we would find out, you know, what kinds of skills, what kinds of crafts, what can we do. Uh, and and then help to create a situation in which this becomes possible, and perhaps also bring in microcredit so that they could create their own companies, mm-hmm. companies and banks, and that's right. Things and, of that nature. Uh, but also to 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 tap into the vast reservoir of understanding, of creativity, of using their minds differently, and not just be focused on their own pathos, but on their own mythos, on the greatness that they contain as human beings, and to bring that out. All of the things you have said I find incredibly elegant. You know I lo- I'm in love with your use of language. But I actually heard you say something that I've never heard another human being to say, and I even had to write it down. Yes. Leaky margins. 
Leaky margins. I love leaky margins. You have no idea. Of well, le- leaky margins is a case of radical empathy. I got it. I love it. Leaky yeah. margins is just so, so totally cool. Though. You have no idea. I was very tired before the show. You've already, just at the idea of leaky margins, I'm on a new level. I have to tell you, I had my moment with Mother Teresa, and I didn't know I was having it at the time because she was yeah. standing in front of me when I was getting on a plane. Mm-hmm. And Larry and I were going to Europe. And... When the stewardess saw, all I saw was a little short person <laughs> in front of me, <clears throat> and she came up to about my nose, mm-hmm. and I, but I saw the stewardess's face, and I said, Larry, I do not know who that little short person is, but I will tell you something. I am going to live a life so that when I walk up, people smile at me the way they smile at that little lady, <laughs> and that was, and I have yeah. lived, I made a commitment that day, and that was 20 years ago. Isn't that interesting? Well, you know, I, I once had a conversation with her. I said, Mother, how can you do so many things? You do things that even the Red Cross can't do. I mean, you, you take care of any child who's left outside the creche, outside of your convent. You give them a decent education. You, you take care of the leper who comes to you. You take care of people dying on the streets and try to bring them back to health. I mean, you do all these things. You take care of the poor in such radical ways. How can you do so much? And she said to me, my dear, it's because I'm so deeply in love. I said, you're in love, Mother? You know, and of course, I was going back to my Catholic childhood, remembering Sister Teresa, who gave me 300 million years in purgatory for asking if Jesus ever had to go to the bathroom. You know? <laughs> oh, by the way, I don't think your time's up yet. <laughs> no, not <laughs> Anyways, I said, how can you do so much? And, and she said, well, I'm in love. I said, yes, who are you in love with? And she said, well, I'm in love with Jesus. I'm married to Jesus. And I said, oh, of course, all nuns are. No, you don't understand. I really am. And I'm in such a state of loving with my beloved that I see my beloved everywhere, in the poor, in the, de- in the child, you know, in the, in the baby, in, in the, the man dying on the street. And I cannot do enough for my beloved, and perhaps that's why my beloved cannot do enough for me. And that's why I'm able to do that's so. Very interesting story. And what is really interesting is that, you know, the recently there have been published her letters to several of her mentors during the time that she was in it very dry place spiritually and yet in spite of that she kept on kept on acting as if the beloved was still there in an effulgent way in her soul and that was it she transcended her own pathos and mm. kept on seeing the beloved in the in the eyes of the poor well a friend of mine actually worked with Mir Alioto years ago yes and told after i told the story she then told her story and her story was that her friend um, was in the mayor's office and Mother Teresa came in and said that she needed a, a building in a particular neighborhood and would he show her them and he agreed to and then she said no I want that building over there and he said you don't understand and she said no you don't understand that's my building the one over there Yeah. and she got the one over she there she was a very tough old bird and she was filled with a kind of fiery inspiration all the time. And okay. she got, and just things, things happened for her. You know, she was in a state of deep alignment of purpose, probably more so than just about anybody I've ever known. And as you know, I have known many of the great people of our time. I, I totally do. And, and uh, I've never seen anybody so deeply, deeply in radical alignment with purpose. 
Well, and, so, and so reality, she was a walking magnet. <laughs> so things came her way all the time. Well, I want to tell you something, though. When I went to Washington, D.C., and I called you because I wanted yes. to go to the inauguration, my foundation had $6.38 in the bank account. Yes, you wrote that. <clears throat> and I, I told you about that, and you read the thing that I wrote. Mm-hmm. But I actually experienced for a week what I believe Mother Teresa experienced for a lifetime. And what I experienced for that week was that whatever I was given was perfect, that all I had to do was ask, and if I was offered advice, that was perfect. If I was offered a dollar, that was perfect. If I was offered a $1,000, that was perfect. And I felt totally safe and in trust with the universe and that, that, I, was, that I was on a sacred mission that was part of my spiritual path and that it was my destiny to be there and nobody could, not even the FBI could shake me from where I was supposed to be. And I ended up with spiritual assistance every inch of the way. Just well, I, I remember our time. conversation. I was in a car at the time and uh, driving in and out of tunnels. I was afraid of losing you. And it was very clear to me, Val, uh, that, that, that in your intensity of purpose, that you had literally created a kind of uh, energy frequency around you and, you know, you were not boring God, and you were not boring the universe. <laughs> and the universe was coming, was just sort of concatenating around you. When I have studied, as you may know, highly creative people who have had sustained creativity and sustained purpose, I have discovered that this, this is just the word. I mean, I, well, for example, as you know, I was very close to the anthropologist Margaret Mead. She actually lived Yeah, with I us. love those stories. Yeah, she lived with us often on the last six years of her life. And I remember walking with her, and she was complaining about something that she had information she had to have to be able to present the next day. And she could not find it. So we're walking along, and a woman comes up to her and says, Oh, Dr. Mead, you don't remember me. But she said, Of course I do. You're Linda Nussdorf. You were in my course in 1947, and you never finished your paper. (laughs) This is 30 years later. She said, Well, actually, Dr. Mead, I I did. uh, but uh, and it was about and I've actually pursued it as a graduate study and I've written substantially about this and it was about exactly the same thing that Margaret was just talking about. Margaret grabbed her by the hand and said, "You'll come home with me." Well, I was so stunned. I just saw lucky events just go not just clump, clump, clump around her. And I said to her, "You are the luckiest person I've ever known." She said, "Yes, I am blessed." And I said, "Well, why do you? Why are you so blessed?" And she said beaming at me because I expect to be <laughs> you know when, and so she had this this quality of utter attunement to what I would consider to be a higher destiny now my higher it destiny, is and part of what it yeah. is is that you know that what you want is there somewhere you just don't know exactly where it is and, and it's as if you are a cosmic agent you're exactly with larger purposes of the earth history and the earth story at this time so what if people listening to this radio program could get that the world is not what is in the newspapers and that each one of us has some art or artistry within us that this is the time to express i actually looked up the word art artistry Mm -hmm. and it says creative skill or ability and i thought that was a little bit short because then i started thinking about all the people that happened to you know even um, ride a horse well or bake a cherry pie, that in a sense they're all artists. And so then I found that art was a skill being um, at doing a specific thing acquired through practice, and I like that. It's not just creative. 
but it's actually a skill you create through practice. So how could we invite listeners to take a look at the world, which on one hand can be so terrifying right now, and bring artistry, what you're talking about, and intention and creation into owning their place in the world, like your website says, for those of the listeners that are looking at the website right now. Mm -hmm. What can we offer? Well, first of all, let's just talk about the world. I mean, what you see in the newspapers is just all this terrible news. But at the same time, there is a great underlying energy of hope that is going on. The world that I'm in all over the world is, in many ways, does not resemble the world of the newspapers. Uh, the rise of women to full partnership with men in the whole domain of human affairs. I mean, with terrible backlash, but it's happening. This is a huge, a massive shift, because with a woman, the emphasis is on process rather than product, making things go here, develop, grow, and above all, being in association with others and ongoing teaching, learning communities to make things happen. A woman would no more let her business die than she would let her child die and has no problems about working with others. Now, this is huge because one of the things that we're moving toward, and especially in an age of hyper-connectivity, what with Twitter and Flickr and Facebook, etc., is we're looking into a world in which we are essentially moving into another orders of community in which we share, in which we help each other. Uh, the money system itself is going to change radically. It's not. We may have uh, my friend Bernard Lyotard, who helped create the uh, the euro. You know, talks about well, there will probably eventually be a universal currency called the Terra, the E R R A, with local currencies and local bartering systems. Really? So what yeah, happens to the Amero? Is shifting huge, so that no longer will cultures be satellites to economics. Rather, economics will become a, cult, a satellite to the soul of culture. Where does the Amero fall in this? Or do you see that, well, that at all? That, that, that would be an example of some of this. I mean, we, we don't know what's going to happen. It's going to shift enormously in the next, uh, well, few months to several years. Now, in, in addition to this, what we find is that, spirit, that, that one of the greatest treasures of all is not at Fort Knox or where the money is kept. It's within, each, each, within ourselves. I mean, when I work with social artistry, which, in which the, the artistic form is the social canvas rather than a musical instrument or a paintbrush, what we do around the world in training people all over the world as well as in, in, in the States is we work with giving them access to this immensity, the gold of the psyche, it's like an alchemy, so that they learn to think and feel in many new ways, so they begin to tap into other orders of intelligence that they didn't know they have, tapping into the vast underground of creativity that is going on beneath the surface crust of consciousness all the time. Now, would you consider that, Gene, sorry to interrupt you, but I want to make sure that certain things get out there. Yes. Um, Would those things be available to them through... um, your mystery schools? Through my mystery school and through our summer program in social artists. Okay, well, if, if you can kind of weave that in here, because it gives them access to, to what they're listening to today. Well, the mystery it. school, um, it's kind of late to sign up for the mystery school right now, but they could sign up for the mystery school intensive, which is going to be held in June in Ashland, Oregon. That's also a traveling mystery school. We take them to Mount Shasta and and the great redwood forest. Now, this is an oogie-boogie that you're talking about here. Can you give them a flavor of what your mystery school is? A mystery school is a place where they learn to access different capacities that they never knew they had, often within the structure of fascinating new ideas coming from art, culture, science, 
Um, there's both lectures as well as a lot of experiential learning, and most people who have been through the mystery school, I'd say 80%, go out and do very different kinds of things in and with their life, new businesses, new jobs, new uh, schools that they create. It becomes a kind of cauldron of new orders of professional. I actually went to the um, Nobel Laureates Conference after the mystery school. Yes, I remember. In Rome. Uh, also, I, I just want to say that to, the, to our listeners that uh, an exercise that I did in Jean's mystery school was actually very profound because being an American in a bush-run world in 2005 was a very challenging place to be. <laughs> and it was embarrassing, actually. It was like I met Les Walenska, and when he said, where are you from, and I said, America, he looked at the floor. Mm-hmm. And that was not an uncommon experience. And the particular um, experience that I had in the mystery school, Gene, so stuck with me because it really transferred into these circumstances, was the one where you had each of us sing a song and move through the crowd. So when I was over in Rome and I was getting some very friendly people were there, but there were some others that just wanted nothing to do with this. And I said, look, I'm American here on my own dime, and I didn't elect him, and nobody he wasn't elected, so let's not do this. Mm-hmm. And I would go on and I would, like, tug on arms and things like that and say, hey, let's talk. I had total capacity to hold my song. Mm-hmm. And that was, I thought of the training as I, you know, as I initiated that. And I thought, did, I even thought that I had the right to have my song. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of uh, citizens of the world have been so confused and so misled that not only do we not, if we know what our song is, we're not even sure we have the right to sing it. That, that's correct. But now it's changing. You know, I was in Egypt a few months ago and um, also burying my husband's ashes between the paws of the Sphinx. My husband, you know, died. I didn't, actually. Oh, yeah, my beloved husband. Why don't you years. just say a little blessing for him right Well, we now. would, but he died uh, seven months ago. That's okay. And radio waves go out into the universe yes, and they Robert stay there Masters, forever. Robert Masters. And blessings on you, Robert, wherever you are. I hope you're flying with dragons. That's what he liked to do with his <laughs> imagination. But he was, uh, you know, one of the things I did before he died is I... I interviewed him on his life so that he could reflect on his 81 years, you know, in different mm-hmm. ways, and he would say, oh, my, that's what it's about. So I took his ashes with me with my 75, 75 of my students, and we went to the great temples, and I buried his ashes between the paws of the Sphinx in the Temple of Sekhmet and in front of the statue of Ramesses II, whom he greatly resembled and behaved according mm-hmm. to my dad. But we would come out of these ten- temples out, and we would be surrounded by Egyptians all saying the same thing. Obama, 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 Obama. And <laughs> French tourists, French tourists who normally hated us, would come up and say, oh, we forgive you everything. We love yes. you. Obama, Obama, Obama. You know. So yes, it was I as did. if a door had been opened in the reality of the American structure. It had, And there was this huge sense of ebullience. A few days ago, I was in Washington, D.C., working with the, uh, the social workers there in their yeah. meeting. And it was fascinating, the, the lilt of in their eyes, the sense of sensibility, Washington, D.C. being very, a whole different sensibility. There is an openness in the moment, and this is why there is a tremendous openness in the re- reconstruction, in the shift in the social modality. You ask about what I do about it. I also offer courses in social artistry. Human development in the light of social change how to give people the capacities, the powers, and the networks, and the, and the, the appropriate meetings and contacts, as well as 
contacts within themselves, contacts without, so that they can be part of this immense social movement that is happening now. Mm. So, so ready, I was listening to you. I actually, took mom, mm-hmm. I actually took mom with me to Rome. Yes. I distributed my mom in Drury Lane as well Did you in really? England. I took her to, I divided her up and I took her, I put her in the Tiber River. I put her in Michelangelo's plaza. I put her in the Valentine. We're talking about people's ashes. <laughs> it's, it's just, but it's it's like my mom wanted to go to all these places, mm-hmm. and so she did. And I think what I want to paint here is the fact that this isn't just a moment by moment thing. What Jean and yeah. I are talking about is an evolution of humanity and the possibility of that, and the fact that actually we have more opportunity to change things than we did ten years ago. Much more so. Because all the structures are collapsing. It's, what it's one been, do, does in this lifetime at this time can profoundly make a difference as to whether we grow or whether we die. Well, Barbara Marks Hubbard will tell you that we can't do anything else but. Have you ever talked to Barbara? Barbara's one of my closest friends. So why didn't? <laughs> I it, why is it I did that? I did forty years. So Barbara's about the butterfly and how the butterfly actually has to kill itself off. The, the caterpillar has to kill itself well, off. Well, that's so interesting. You know, the caterpillar goes around eating everything. Rom, 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 yes. rom. Does not live lightly on the earth. Finally, if he isn't picked off by a bird, forms the cocoon. The cocoon becomes, he becomes mush in the cocoon. Utter mush. How could any butterfly arrive out of this mush? But you have creative guidance cells known as imaginal cells that are whistling to each other, hey there, we've got to get together. <laughs> and meanwhile, the mush is saying, no, you won't, no, you won't, no, you won't. And so you have all these imaginal, creative, high-guidance cells, and they finally get it together, and they use the mush as nutriment. And finally, the beautiful butterfly emerges, lives lightly on the earth, very small footprint, by the way, butterfly, and, <laughs> and pollinates and makes beauty, you know. And, and that's where we are. We're in the mush and we're looking for the guidance, imaginal selves that are going to call us into our transition, our transformation. I thought so, too. You know? Don't you think that's a grand image? Well, it's a very important image. There's also something very other. in this higher guidance. Another there's also, issue is, how do we find it? There's another interesting part of that image. If you try to speed up the process and cut the butterfly out too soon, it, doesn't work. it dies. It dies, yeah. So the process that we're in is perfect. And I used to um, be very upset that Bush had been awarded a second presidency until I realized that we would not have embraced Obama with the strength that we did if, if he'd only been in office for four years. And, you know, something else that nobody is writing about, because America was so demythologized in people's minds, it was no longer the great land of opportunity. It was the, it was the land of the, av- the avalanche of greed and one that had completely compromised all its principles. What People were no longer morally dependent on America. And what I found all over the world is that cultures were deepening, reappreciating, and deepening back into their own cultures. And this, this is, of course, a critical thing if we're moving toward a planetary civilization, that we need to have the abundance of creative, healthy cultures that create the context, the matrix, of this emerging planetary Oh, my God. What a perfect place to take our break and go to Diamond Alignment. I'm Dr. Val Kirkgaard. You're listening to Waking Up in America. I'm on the air with Jean Houston, and she'll share more about her leaky margins and her worldview, and we'll interact some more. And please feel free to write us at val at wakingupinamerica.com and shoot us a question, and I'll pass it on to Jean. And I just can't wait for that Diamond Alignment. Jean, here it comes. 
before in history. Yet it is easy to get lost in the confusion and chaos of such an accelerated world. How do we stay connected and aligned with the unlimited potential that lies within us and soar in these exciting yet challenging times? Diamond Alignment, a sacred technology for the 21st century, offers high-speed connection and alignment with this divine power within, both convenient and profound. The six-minute multi-sensory diamond experience delivered via the internet clears your mind, relaxes your body, and creates inner peace no matter what is going on around you. The Diamond Alignment Experience effortlessly keeps you charged with joy and equanimity and greater focus and clarity throughout your day. When you experience the expansive energy of Diamond Alignment, you activate the unlimited wealth and potential There you go, Diamond Alignment. I, I love how this works. We also want to take this time to acknowledge the good guys that make Waking Up in America possible. And uh, first one that comes along is Stardust at 828-665-0411. And what they do is they have a really powerful mailing list of cultural creatives. I'm going to say it. I've used it for my coding company and a few other things that I've been doing. And I'm inspired by the people that respond and the quality that they are. So I always make sure that I do my advertisements. Um, I always include Stardust. So once again, that number is 828-665-0411. I believe their mailing list is one of those double or triple opt-in lists that had about 100,000 people there. And when people go through all of that to get on a mailing list, you can count on the fact that they get excited about your material coming. If you need to run away from the conversations that are busy buzzing around the world and in the planet now, you can go to a hideaway in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And um, San Pancho is about 45 minutes north of Puerto Vallarta if you have a heavy foot, and I love it up there. I actually bought property there, and I have friends, Steve and Diana, that run the bungalows. They have little kitchens. They're close to the beach. The people are charming. The town is simple, and you don't have to go to Tijuana to get there. You just fly into into um, Puerto Vallarta, and it's a it's a wonderful drive north. And um, most places in Mexico are very, very, very safe. And all you hear about is Tijuana, which isn't. So it isn't Tijuana. So I'm at three one zero four five five eight six two three. If you'd like to know more about Monavi, or you're interested in hearing about clearing with directed breath, I created that process back in 1984, and I've enjoyed being a consultant and helping people clear up their electromagnetic field. So there you go. I'm on the air right now with Jean Houston. You're listening to Waking Up in America. And, Jean, I have an email from John. His question is, I think it's a good one, too. I like it. He says, if Mother Teresa and uh, or Margaret Mead were still alive, what piece of advice do you think each one of them would give to the world, like a one-liner? 
Oh my, it's very hard to get into the mind of such complex, multi-layered people. I knew Margaret Mead, of course, best of all. We'll go for her first. And so I would say, she would say, get together in teaching, learning communities and begin to grow together. I mean, this is the advice she said to me on her deathbed, actually. Really? Yes, she said to me, Jean, I'm lying here being an anthropologist on my own dying. Fascinating experience. There's no hierarchy, hierarchy to it. And she said, I see if we're going to grow and green our world, it's a question of people getting together in teaching, learning communities. And she said, doing real growth work. Uh, she said, using your work, other people's work, but whoever it is that is doing the growth work, especially on the sensory, the psychological, the symbolic and spiritual levels. Uh, this is not a therapeutic community. It is a growth community, but on the basis of their mutual growth, finding what they just simple or not so simple things that they can do in the world and bringing this expanded, extended consciousness into the world to solve problems in brand new ways, that to see all these challenges as opportunities in work clothes. Well, let me try, if there's more when you're done, I'd like to try Mother Teresa. All right, you do Mother Teresa. Okay, so I've been sitting here being Mother <laughs> Teresa while you were being Margaret Mead. Yes. And I, I would tell humanity, I tell you, that to look in the face of your neighbors yes. and to look in the face of the people on other continents and to fall deeply and powerfully in love. I think that's superb, and I think that's the way she would have seen it. I quite agree from what I knew of her. I think that's... Well, that's what I felt, that yes. when I... When I saw the look on the stewardess's face, and I saw the stewardess was in love with this woman, not only was she in love, she was deeply moved simply by the presence. And that doesn't happen with a bunch of blah, blah. No, no, no. You know? She had presence. She was in, she was in a state of loving all the time. And this presence was something that was like an energetic field in which people felt ignited within her present. She was very short, she was very plain, and she was very luminous at the same time. Well, I'm going to say she was probably five feet or less. Well, I, she wasn't five feet. She was lower than that. Maybe I had my flats on. <laughs> you know, I don't know, but it was, just, it was such yeah, a moving okay. experience that I, I, I didn't recognize. Margaret the was very small, too. You know, was she? Though she was hefty, yeah. So look into the face of, of your neighbors and, and find love. Uh, I've been Actually, I've been practicing that up here in the canyon. I've lived in Topanga Canyon for a lot of years, Jane, and I didn't feel really connected. And I thought, whose who's concern is that, you know? So I started, like, actually engaging my neighbors and loving them and, and appreciating the fact that they were here. And uh, you can find something to appreciate wherever you look. Oh, you I mean, to. what you appreciate, appreciates. I think it was was it uh, George Washington Carver who said, "Whenever you, whenever you really appreciate anything enough, it it loves you back." <laughs> Whether it's a tree <laughs> or a flower, or, you... or a person. I have an exercise, you know, that I do with I large that. groups. Uh, the exercises I have them close their eyes, and they have to be really close their eyes because they can't do it with it. And they wander around, you know, toward the center together. And it could be, you could have a thousand people, you could have a hundred people, you could have fifty people. And they, and I, I explain the exercise. You, you, you will bump into a person and you will say to them, "Are you God in hiding?" Oh, and really? they will respond, "Are you God in hiding?" And then you go and you bump into somebody else. "Are you God in hiding?" And they'll respond, "Are you God in hiding?" Well, as the 
teacher in the process, I will choose one person, and I tell them that, who will, when they're wandering around blind, and I'll place my hand very heavily on their head so they'll know who they are, and they will be the God no mm-hmm. longer in hiding. So if I run up to them and say, blind, are you God in hiding? They are silent. And from their silence, I become Godded, and I become silent too. So if somebody comes up to me and says, are you God in hiding? I am silent. They become silent. It takes less than a minute for a thousand people to become completely silent in this process. Wow. And even less than that, much less than that with smaller groups. This is so and then interesting. When, when it's all silent and they're all in this stunning, actually stunned, astonished statement of silence, I say, open your eyes and look at all the gods no longer in hiding. Very powerful process. God, yes. And you know what? It reminds me of the opposite in a way, but not really the opposite. Mm-hmm. In uh, Insight Training Seminar, they turned off all the lights in the room, mm-hmm. and we all had candles. Yes. So one person in the center had their candle lit, mm-hmm. and then they lit another person's candle, and then that person lit other other people's candles, and it multiplied. And within a minute, the room was illuminated. That's right. That's right. I've not done that. So it happens that fast. Yeah. See, this but is the movement toward different orders of ritual. Ritual comes from the ancient Sanskrit word of rita, rita, which means art, discipline, the, tra- the dance, that which illumines our transitions. I really think we need more rituals of moving from a lesser state to a higher state. Um, I, I once years ago worked with uh, Westchester County schools in New York where they were having kids getting together in suicide packs where they'd all jump off a mountain or something. Oh, gee. And I realized that the reason for this, I mean, it was really, it was a huge... Yeah, I'd like to hear the reason. Yeah, but it was a huge problem, as you can imagine. <laughs> but I realized that what happened is they were adolescents. Now, since time out of mind, adolescents have always had rituals of, of transition, of moving from an adolescent state to the next state. Well, we don't have those anymore. I mean, we have football, which is sort of ritualistic, you know, ritualistic 11 young heroes carrying the holy egg through the womb of the goalpost while the ersatz virgins dance and scream on the side, you know. But not the powerful. So what I did was create very, very powerful rituals of transition. Like, give us an example. Well, they would, they would go on vision quests. We would have them on vision quests. Uh, and they would learn the secrets of, of, of themselves, of, of their deep psyche, and of the secrets of the society and culture. And uh, sometimes they would be given very strenuous things to do, and they would come back and they would be shifted, and then they would have things to do in the society, I mean, taking care of elderly or whatever. But it, I've never seen such an acceleration of growth. I describe this, by the way, in the second edition of, a, of a, my book that has just come out called The Hero and the Goddess. Oh, it did come out. I just didn't came know. out. The, the Odyssey as... Uh, it's about the, the, the Odyssey as a, as a journey of transformation for our present selves using the great, my favorite... I just want to Odyssey. interrupt for a minute before we get too far away. Yes. What age are you taking these children into this ritual? Well, anywhere between 13 and 18. Isn't sometimes in this culture 13 too late? Uh, well, it's when you can get them in, in generally the high school. You can do it with younger kids, but 13, it's the early adolescence, you know, about that. No, I was just thinking, you know, I recently yes, you could seen... you with earlier people, but eight years old might be a little bit much. I really, I've actually seen yeah. children that are now on trial for murder and things yes. like that, and they're well, under no 10. no question of that. And that's, that's because of the lack of, of really training people to be appreciative not only of themselves, 
but honoring of others. You know, I, I actually had a comment on what's going on in our culture today because I realized that the corruption, the corruption in the cultures yes. has probably blossomed since the latchkey children had no parents. Yes, the, 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 latch, the latchkey. Yes. And, and the latchkey, these are the children now that have had no parents that are running the country and all they care about is money. Yeah, and the greed. latchkey kids became the boomers. Exactly. But there's now a whole new order of, of kids called the millennial generation who are anywhere between 16 and 30. And, you know, in, in counter-distinction to the boomer parents, what they have had is a great deal of affection and care. But they've also brought each other up between Flickr, Facebook, Twitter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this hyper-connectivity that we've had with the Internet and with the mobile communication is creating a kind of great networking, a great netting of people that has never been there before. Well, and this is why we're, we're moving in our time to a netting of the human race that has never been there. It's well, actually different. like to mention uh, a personal thing that happened that shows people how fast something happens. A woman um, the day before sent out pictures of these dogs that needed a home. Oh, my. And they were very precious dogs, and she was very upset because she had to leave. So I circulated this these pictures of these dogs. I would have taken them myself, the way the whole thing was set up. It was so cool. But I already have quite a few animals. <laughs> I circulated the pictures, Jane, overnight. She sent me an email at like 9 o'clock in the morning the next day, okay? The same day I got it. I sent out an email to about 30 people. She sent me an email back saying, please, the dogs have been given away. They were given away last night within an hour. She had 3,500 responses. Now, did you announce this on your radio show? Or? No, I didn't even get to the radio show. I just saw the dogs. They were local dogs. Yeah. And I sent out the email to 30 friends. And she said that in the period of when she sent it out the night before till that morning, she had been invited to be on either two or three television shows and two radio shows, mm-hmm. and that the dogs were long gone. They were gone the first hour. Oh, my goodness. So... If something moves people, then the the it can it can flash just like you were talking about the room going silent in a minute, mm-hmm. people recognizing that they were God in a minute. You know, this doesn't have to be long drawn out. One of the reasons I was aching to get you on Waking Up in America so quickly is I am totally convinced that this lack of faith is simply a conversation that things that are being focused on are the things that aren't working, and there's a lot of things that are working. Well, that's why it's critical, Val, that you with your show and others who have similar programs open the conversation not only of a new order of faith, but a new order of being, new ways of being. Because when people, people actually are wildly open now. They may have lost faith in the economy, but they, but they need the ignition point to activate the fires of their own becoming. Totally. In Washington, when I was there, Jean, there were 2.2 million people crowded yeah. together in the streets. And you know what? There was not one incident of violence. What we did when we met each other, we bumped knuckles, we kissed each other, we danced. Yes, you wrote about that. that was we funny. just, it was just, it was, there were no barriers, and there were no barriers for about two and a half days. And then after that, you could tell who had been in the inauguration and who hadn't. Because when they got on the elevator, it was cool. The air it was, was cool. It was a great spiritual event. Totally. Like previous inauguration. Has there ever been a gathering of people larger than this? I don't know. 
No, probably, certainly not in Washington, no. No, this is the biggest of all. People knew that this was the open door to a, a new society. And the interesting... And that it was also the death of the old order. It, and the wake for the old order had taken place at the election, and this was literally the new order entering into time. People knew themselves as world historical individuals, not encapsulated bags of skin dragging around dreary little egos that had to consume <laughs> more and more in order to know that they were alive. There was an experience that I had there. We were waiting to go into the through the purple gates. Yes. And we were packed together so tightly that we couldn't move and we couldn't see our feet. Yes. And there was a somebody started to push in the crowd. And different voices in the crowd said, "Stop, you'll hurt somebody." And immediately the pushing stopped. Yes. Somebody started to light a cigarette and people all over the place said, "Put the cigarette out. It's not good for us." And in that moment, what flashed on the screen was is that I was a cell in a body and that we were all cells pressed up against each other. And I realized that humanity is, there is a, there is a, a body that, of which we are all members and that we actually have to pay attention to not pushing or not doing cigarettes or whatever it is because it isn't for one person. Mm-hmm. There is, we are, what do you call it, the body cosmic or we universal are cosmic or... beings. We are in a world of co-creation. Uh, this is an, a deep, engaging force in our life. It overrides the old habits, the old ways of being. We are no longer, we no longer have to be submissive to the old ways of being that kept us in a soup of resentment and a place of un- unvisioning. This is a time in which we open our aspiration uh, to the even greater intentions that surround life from what I call the entelechy, the great higher destiny, the dynamic purpose. And so we are, I believe, the lensing. We are one one reality. We are the lensing of God's stuff on earth, the focalization of eternity and time. I mean, uh, we we are part of this incredible shift from habituated patterns, from from life as serial monotony interrupted by episodes of trouble, panic, and loss. Sure, we are rather <laughs> those who have entered into a whole new order of reality. Thus, we take seriously the dictum of being renewed through the renewing of our minds, and not just our minds, but our bodies, our souls, our, our ultimate unity. I mean, the powers of, of second genesis lie within us. So that this is, means that we have to agree to attune and orchestrate our thoughts and emotions toward these higher purposes, toward these creative ends, to these new opportunities. And I think in this, my own personal belief is we have help for Spirit assures us that the lure of the coming is is always calling us, as is the incendiary vision of what we may be, and we're limited only by the concept of uh, only by concept of the refusal that comes from ignorance or laziness to to do what have we have to do, which is to remount the slope of thought. And I think that what I, what I'm calling a kind of partnership-oriented spirituality can do is to give us a passion for this new possibility along with real directions for building a, a new matrix of mind and manifestation. Also a recognition of self. And I was thinking about taking off the, the layers of boredom, the layers of um, yes, habit. Of mm-hmm. And uh, the universe, I'm looking at your website now, Gene, and it says the universe is holding its breath, waiting for you to take your place. Exactly. What would happen exactly. if you take off those bore, boring layers, those Habitual. I, I think it's a lot of bad habits, actually, we've got. It is, it is about habits. 
And habits can be changed. You just have to recognize Well, you know, there's a whole new field called neuroplasticity. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, which has to do with the fact that we can literally restructure our brain-mind systems. There's a marvelous book out called The Brain That Changes Itself. A lot of our work has been that in both our social artistry and mystery school. We show you how to literally restructure thought, thinking, mind, brain, and that this means that uh, you know, evolution follows involution, wherein we, which gives us keys to the, this emerging phase of our existence. We're living in a time of deep new emergence, and uh, it, that takes us into the vast ecology of inner space and of our own brains that can so change. And I think that what is what we have found in our time in the in the new mind and brain research provides for a spiritual revolution in our understanding of who we are and what we yet may be, and that as we go within, we access the, the great depth structures of our being and build bridges to the greater, deeper realms wherein lie the, the, the dynamic designs that form and reform our reality. I'm actually saying something very radical, that within us lies the structures that can literally restructure government, spirituality, health, all kinds of things. We can be active and creative citizens in a universe and in an innerverse richer than all our imaginings. I'm thinking as you're talking that <clears throat> what's required to do this is for us to claim our authentic selves. Absolutely. And not to be living in accordance with what one what what concerns has about what another is thinking about us, but trusting ourselves that we have we have good values and kind hearts and then linking with others and being taught by others and others learning from us and having conversations and conclaves and all kinds of things. I'm very still I'm I'm loving the leaky margins because I think that's probably we've our margins have been t- so rigid, which I would call probably very linear here. Very linear, very rigid. We've lived as calcified versions of who and what we are. And that's why I say we have no choice but to democratize greatness. And this requires this radical empathy. I mean, I think it is for this that we've been created. I, I think that the infinite, knowing that it cannot contract, has, has coded the relative, meaning ourselves, for expansion into a self. And for the first time in human history, the first time, we are required as a species to extend ourselves into radically new ways of being. The restoration uh, uh, into the full dignity and power of the sacred feminine, the sacred marriage of masculine and feminine, transcendence and imminence, I mean, clarity and passion, wisdom and compassion, can take place within our humanness and give us capacity to co-create and partner with the cosmos, if you will, or the divine or spirit, a transformed world. And I think that with the human feminine coming up, deepening rather than producing and achieving circular investedness, sharing deep relation to others, more important than hierarchy. I mean, the art and science of making things work, grow, more important than strategies or end-going. Eros, more important than logos, the subjective realm having ready ready importance along with the objective one. Forgive I mean, me. what we're having is literally a radical shift in what it means to be human. I, I'm ignorant here. Eros and logos. Eros is, is the, pro- the process of of uh, relationship, interaction. Logos is the process of uh, analytical thinking. 
So oh, I like Eros much better. I mean, even though analytical thinking is, <laughs> is great, sometimes I'm much happier at Eros. I can see why yeah. I didn't know the other yeah. word. Uh, what I'm thinking here is I'd like people to know what that they've had a taste of a, one of the. I'm going to have to say that you're the most remarkable speaker that I've met. There's one other person I can't think of. Her, um, I can't think of her name right now. But the two of you have the best use of language and stimulate the most excitement. She actually works with Landmark Education and has done so in years, and I totally appreciate that work. And I think that putting together something like Landmark Education was put together a language that gives you a language that can communicate things that aren't necessarily in our culture. And then you do something like these mystery schools that you're actually putting together the masculine and feminine. And well, also our social artistry program. I, I have received a mandate from Dr. Sharma, who's head of leadership and capacities off in the UN, to cha- train 5,000 people in my work in social artistry, who then have to train 100 million over the next 10 years. So that's... <laughs> well, you, you've got your work cut out for Boy, you. do I ever. That's why I'm, I'm all looking at your books now. here, Jean. Pardon? I'm on your website looking at all the books. I was actually I've only yeah. met two of them, much to my embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Um so hopping over to jean, dot org and jean is J-E-A-N, check out the book section. There's articles, there's audio, there's video. I haven't looked at the mythic good. Well, Houston.org is Houston out of Texas, by the way. Sam oh. Houston was my great-great-great-grandfather. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Robert <laughs> Lee was my great-great-grandfather. And my mother's name was... Maria Nunziata Rafina Graziella Pierina Papetiu Tadaro, born in Syracuse, Sicily, and she married Jack Houston. <laughs> well, I'm very hybrid. So how did he get to her? They they met at some dance. He thought she looked like a fairy princess. He thought, uh, you know, and she thought he looked like uh, Gary Cooper, which was actually true. That's pretty good. So that was the basis of marriage. That was pretty darn good. So you were kind of, I, I'm not going to say, you were born with... Um, Golden words in your mouth, not a gold. So well, my dad was a wordsmith, and and uh, you know the Houstons have a long tradition of being wordsmiths. So what I always heard great language. My mother, being Sicilian, fell in love with the English language and uh, was a, also an actor. And and uh, so as a child, because I never went to one school, I went to twenty schools before I was twelve because we were always on the road. Uh, dad followed the comedians, and so my mother trained me in Shakespeare and in poetry. Gosh, we're just going to have to get her back so she can finish off all those sentences. I'm sold. <laughs> I have been for years. I suppose I should end this thing, shouldn't I? I don't want to. You can tell. This program has been brought to you by the Golden Hearts Foundation in association with Kirkguard Media, our radio partners, ConingCompany.com, Mona V, Max GXL, Dr. James Murphy and Memoriam. Thank you to the team at Voice America and to Bent Migan for our theme music, Almost Ordinary People. Next week, invite a friend to listen. Write us at val at wakingupinamerica.com. And remember, Sidious Altius Fortius. And remember, genehouston.org. Oh, my God. Thank you, Gene. Love and dreams and the time you spoke them We're almost ordinary people Thank you for joining us today for Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard. Waking Up in America can be heard live every Wednesday, 12 p.m. Pacific Time on voiceamerica.com and Valerie welcomes all emails at heavenincorporated.com.